0: Uh, Before we begin the message today, I just want to celebrate something. Last weekend, we gave an opportunity to join this revolution that Jesus is inviting us into by serving our community and serving those in need right here in our own congregation. And 124 of you immediately responded last weekend after our service and signed up to serve. Well done. That just shows that this is a church that not only hears God's word, but actually puts it into practice. And that was so encouraging for me. Well done, Wooddale. It's just one of the many reasons that I love this church, and I love what God is doing in and through this church. And so it just means that there's more to come that God has for us. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're in the midst of a series called Follow Me. And we are learning what it means to follow Jesus by walking through an ancient document that was a biography about Jesus uh, called the Gospel of Mark. But it's not just any biography, it's the inspired word of God that Mark writes down that helps us to understand who Jesus really is and how, when we follow him, our lives become transformed. And today, we're gonna be in Mark chapter nine, and we're gonna come to a point in Mark where we're gonna wrestle with this question. And this question is at the center of what it means to be transformed spiritually. That for some of you, you may not be followers of Jesus yet. You may be kind of aware of religion or aware of Christianity or aware of this church thing, but you just haven't committed to really following after Jesus. And if that's true, you have a bunch of questions that are probably in your mind, like, is this real? Did this happen? How do I know? Can I trust the Bible? All these things. But at the core is this one question that's holding you back from experiencing transformation spiritually. For others of us, we've been following Jesus most of our life or for many, many years, and you have trusted God in a whole number of different ways, and still certain things happen in your life or certain situations come up, and then actually you find yourself coming back to the same question, and transformation is found on the other side of this question. And that question is, can I trust God? Like, can I really trust God? God. And what's surprising is that God answers that question for us all throughout Scripture. But his answer, it's surprising. And it's often not what we would expect. And today, we're going to hear three stories all about that question and God's surprising answer. And all of them involve a mountain. And we need to understand the first two before we can understand Mark chapter 9. So the first mountain that we come to is a mountain that a man named Moses was on. Uh, Moses was a man that God had chosen from his people, the people of Israel, who had been in slavery in Egypt. And God used Moses to lead the people out of slavery, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and then eventually to the promised land. And on the journey, they stop at a place in that wilderness called Mount Sinai. Now, we think we know where Mount Sinai actually is. It's a very large mountain, over 7,000 feet tall. And it was there that Moses went up and down that mountain. And when he was up on the mountain, he actually communicated with God. He, He was in God's presence. God spoke to him on that mountain. And he would carry that message down to the people. And Moses, if you read the story of Exodus carefully, went up and down that mountain seven different times. Now That's a lot of mountain climbing for a a mountain that's 7,000 plus feet for a man who is in his 80s, which Moses was at the time. So whatever you think about Moses, you need to know Moses was fit, right? Like the guy was in shape. I picture massive leg muscles on Moses, right? Um, So Moses is is up on this mountain, and one of the times that he goes up the mountain— to speak to God, God had clearly called him up on this mountain and there was this cloud that had settled on the mountain, that's symbolic all throughout scripture of God's very presence. And so Moses does what God called him to do and he goes up the mountain and he gets up there and then nothing happens and he waits a day and now it's the second day and nothing happens and then he waits a third day and nothing and a fourth day and nothing and a fifth day and nothing and a sixth day and nothing. And I'm sure Moses was experiencing what often you and I experience at times when we're wondering, what's going on? Like, God, you called me up this mountain. I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm here. I see that there's something going on, but it, it seems like you're not speaking. You're not acting. Like, like, like I'm stuck. Like, what are, what are we supposed to do? And then the next day, on the seventh day, which is just so symbolic and so like God, he then speaks to Moses. And what he does is he calls Moses to step into the cloud. And Moses steps into the cloud, and for the next 40 days, Moses is in this cloud. And when he walks into this cloud, he, he crosses over into this heavenly place, it's like heaven and earth have intersected in this moment. It's like that thin place that separates heaven and earth has 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 kind of become even more thin and Moses is able to peer into the heavenly places and he sees God's dwelling place in the heavenly realms. And God shows him all of this because he says, take notice, I want to explain to you how to build this because I'm going to have you, Moses, go back down the mountain and then you and the people are going to build a replica of this on earth and then I am going to come in my glory and dwell among you as my people. What a moment. I mean, this is like, this was worth the wait. God's going to come and live with us. And then at the end of the 40 days... God says to Moses, you got to go back down to the camp. Your people have turned away from following me. And so Moses races down Mount Sinai, and he gets into the camp, and sure enough, he finds that in the 47 days he's been gone, the people have turned away from following God, and they are now worshiping idols. But not just any idols. They are worshiping idols that have been made from their own recycled jewelry. And not in the image of a massive, impressive bull or even an adult cow, but the image of a calf. These are people who saw God's mighty hand lead them out of slavery in Egypt, and now they are worshiping a golden calf. And Moses is angry, and God is angry. And so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and and asks that God would would forgive and allow him to to still, allow the people to still move forward into the promised land, and and God agrees. And then God starts to meet with Moses, and they meet in in this tent that's there just outside camp, and it's this tent of meeting, and whenever Moses comes out of being in God's presence to give a message to the people, his face is just radiating because he's, he's reflecting God's glory, and the people can't look at it. And so he has to start putting a veil over his face because the people can't be around even the reflected glory of God. And now we start to understand why they made the golden calf. They, They saw God's powerful glory and they didn't know if they could trust him. And rather than try, they then wanted to create a God of their own making that they felt like they could handle. Not a God that was beyond their ability to comprehend. And we get to this point in the story and, and Moses is probably understandably frustrated and confused and he has all these questions and he's pleading, God, you gotta come with us. Like, you gotta come with us as we go into the promised land and how is this gonna work and how are we gonna be able to stay faithful and, and how, how is this all gonna come together? And God responds to Moses by inviting him back up the mountain. He goes back up and there God does not answer all of his questions He does not tell him it's gonna be comfortable. He does not promise him like, ah, it's just gonna work out. Instead, what God does is he shows Moses his glory. He passes in front of Moses and even says his own name to Moses. And in that moment, Moses is transformed. And he goes back down the mountain And he leads forward. Mountain number two comes hundreds of years later. Uh, The people of Israel have moved finally into the promised land, and they had a whole bunch of rulers, and many of them were bad. And then they decided, well, maybe we should have some kings. And the first king didn't work out so well, and the second king is a guy of great promise. His name is David, and it seems like maybe this is the solution But then things kind of fall apart near the end of David's life. He can't keep his family together. Then his son comes into power, and it seems like we got a lot of promise with the son. He's the wisest man that ever lived, wrote a lot of wisdom books. His name is Solomon. But then at the end of Solomon's life, we start to realize that this guy had a problem with the ladies, and he could not stay faithful to one woman, and he could not stay faithful to one God. And every time he married another woman, he started following after her gods, and, and he just gives himself into idolatry. And then his son, Rehoboam, is, is just a, a disaster of a leader, and things just spiraled down for God's people ever since. And so all these kings are in power, and most of them are bad, and they're evil. And so what God does is he starts to speak to the people, to call the people back to himself, and he uses prophets. And one of the prophets he uses is a man named Elijah. And Elijah is a prophet that was, he was a dude that just dressed weird. I mean, if you saw him, you'd be like, that's him, because he wore camel hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. It's a weird, it was a weird look then, it's a weird look now. But despite his weird dress, Elijah was a man of, of a powerful prophet who God used in mighty ways. And he often spoke truth to power. And the king at the time was an evil king named King Ahab. And when you read Ahab's story, you realize that Ahab was, was not a faithful guy, but also he was kind of a pushover. His wife was the one who was really in charge. She was the power behind the throne, and her name was Jezebel, and she was evil. She was into witchcraft. She was into idolatry. She wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. And Ahab, even though that Elijah would call him out on multiple occasions— He never really wanted to do anything about it, and that frustrated Jezebel, and and one day Ahab is, is, is confronted by God through the prophet, and God in a powerful moment displays his glory and that he is the one who is in charge. He embarrasses Ahab and all of Jezebel's false prophets, and Jezebel is so upset about it That after seeing God's mighty hand show up, she goes to the prophet Elijah and says to him, I'm going to kill you. And amazingly, this man who is full of the Spirit of God suddenly loses his nerve. And he does what at times happens in our life. He lets kind of one bad moment and maybe a sense of exhaustion combine to just ruin him. And Elijah runs away. And he takes a 40-day journey, sound familiar? All the way through the wilderness up Mount Sinai, where Moses was. And he climbs up Mount Sinai, and he does what oftentimes you and I do when we're in moments like this, he cries out to God, and he pours his complaints out. And he doesn't hold back. He's like, God, I don't get it. I have been faithful to you, I have done what you have called me to do, I've done all the right things, I've said all the things that you've told me to say, why is this not working out the way I think it should work out? And in the midst of that moment, God responds to the prophet Elijah, not by answering all of his questions, not by telling him it's going to be easy, not by telling him he's going to be comfortable but by allowing him to see his glory. And the glory of God passes by the prophet Elijah. And it's all he needs. And he goes down the mountain and he goes back to work. And that brings us to the third mountain that we're gonna read about in Mark chapter nine. And very quickly you're gonna see how those two mountains come to this mountain. Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Let's just stop right there. When Mark writes, I've told you before, it is a fast-paced document. Uh, Mark has this tendency to be like, immediately this, and then suddenly this happened, and then suddenly this happened. And he kind of goes from like one big event to another big event in just like rapid succession. I mean, it is this this, like frantic pace of a document. But I've told you that every now and then, Mark pauses and he gives us hyper-specific detail in the midst of this overview of Jesus' life. And that actually can give you confidence that these events occurred because they're so specific. And when Mark takes time to give you a hyper-specific detail, it is a clue that there is something else that we need to pay attention to in this story. And so when Mark says, after six days, they waited up on a mountain, what does that remind us of? It reminds us of the story of Moses who waited, and after six days, God spoke on the seventh. It's a sign of what's about ready to happen here on this mountain. So they're up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And it says, there. He, meaning Jesus, was transfigured before them. Now, if you're a note taker and you've got our journal, the Follow Me journal, I I want you to write the word transfigured. Or if you write in your Bible, you can highlight it or circle it. We're going to come back to this word transfigured in a moment because it's so key to what's happening in this passage. And here's how he was transfigured before them. Verse 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, for Peter, James, and John, these were Jewish men, and they knew the Jewish scriptures. They would have known the Hebrew Bible. And in the Hebrew Bible, there's another prophet, a man named Daniel, that had a vision of God on his throne. And he records it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and here's how he describes it. He describes it this way. He says, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, that is often a a, a name that they will give to God himself, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. And so when Jesus is transformed or transfigured before them and he becomes dazzling white, it should remind them and it should remind us That this is what God himself looks like on his throne, dazzling white. Scripture is pointing us to say you need to understand what Jesus is all about here. There's an image that the Bible is giving to us, the Scripture is giving to us about who Jesus is. And then it continues, verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. These same two men, with these epic stories that, that these Jewish men would have known, And those stories were based on them being up on a mountain and talking directly with God. And here's Jesus, dazzling white, as as scripture describes God on his throne, talking to the same men up on a mountain. This is an image that we are being given of saying, Jesus is God. He's not a teacher, he's not a leader, he's not an option. He is God himself in human Form. That's what this is trying to get us to understand. And you can imagine this powerful scene. And it kind of brings up a question though, doesn't it? Because here's the thing. Moses had died hundreds and hundreds, I mean thousands of years before this event occurred. He died and he had been you know, with, with God in God's presence. And the prophet Elijah never actually died. Uh, he was taken up into heaven. And then a second prophet, the prophet Elisha, was the one who then kind of carried his prophetic vision forward. But Elijah had been with God. And this was hundreds of years before Peter and James and and John lived. So the question is, they'd never met these men, even though they knew their stories. How did they know that this was Elijah and Moses on the mountain? How did they know it was those men? And the answer is because one of them dressed weird and the other had massive leg muscles. (laughs) So that's, that's who they are. Here's what's happening. In this scene... Like Moses before them, these men are in a thin place. They're in a place where heaven and earth is starting to intersect. And somehow they're seeing what's true in the heavenly places. And this is not in the text, but here's just me speculating or wondering, is this an image that God's giving to us from his word of what it might be like in heaven? That maybe when we're in the heavenly places, we're just gonna know people. Which is really encouraging for some of us who have lost someone and there's someone that's waiting for us. And maybe if your your grandparents passed away and you only knew them in their later stages of life, in in the heavenly place, are are they going to have a resurrected, glorified body that's going to look younger? Would you recognize them? How are you going to know? And maybe the answer to that is that in the heavenly places, we're just going to know. And if that's true, isn't that so encouraging for us about what that place is going to be like? So you can imagine Peter, James, and John, they're overwhelmed by this experience. They're excited. They're terrified. And Peter starts to say something, and Peter's good for this. Uh, I love Peter. It's just I can relate so much to him. He just sometimes says things that he ought not to say. Uh, Peter says this to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And and I love Peter's heart in this because when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, the whole idea was that God was saying, I'm going to teach you how to build this this big tent because my glory is going to come dwell with you. And so Peter, maybe in thinking about that or trying to, to think, you know, what's next about that is, is seeing Moses, and maybe in his mind he's like, we should build some, some tents and put them all up, and then like, we can hang out here and just enjoy this glorified moment. And so his heart's in the right place, but what he gets wrong is he says, Jesus, we're going to put your tent here, and the next to it we're going to put Moses, and the next to it we're going to put Elijah. And, and there, Elijah kind of represents all the prophets, and Moses represents all the law, and it's like Peter is saying, Jesus, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher who's alongside of all the law and all the prophets. And that's what Peter gets wrong, because Jesus is not alongside all of that. Jesus is God. He's above all of that. And Moses and Elijah did not come and have these experiences like Jesus. They came and had those experiences with him, and their story points us to Jesus. And Peter missed it. And to, like, underscore this point, there is a supernatural event that now occurs in response to make sure we don't miss it. Here's what happens next in response to Peter's statement, starting in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. Okay, the cloud's back, right? Again, this should bring us back to Moses on Mount Sinai. So The cloud's back, appeared before them, and a voice from the cloud, can you imagine what this moment would have been like? The voice of God the Father from the cloud says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Man, what a moment. When Mark writes this, he writes it in Greek. And the reason he wrote this document in Greek is that was the common language of the day. So if you wanted to get a message out there and have a bunch of people read it around the world, you would write it in Greek. But Peter, James, John, and Jesus would not have spoken Greek to one another. They likely would have spoken Aramaic. But because Jesus was a teacher and because all of the Jewish scriptures are written in the language of Hebrew, Hebrews, uh, it's likely that when Peter, James, and John, and Jesus would have maybe been together, or certainly when they would have been praying or talking about religious things, they might have used the Hebrew language. And so I have to wonder, when God the Father spoke to them from the cloud, did he speak to them in Hebrew? And if he did, when he said, listen to them, the word that they would have heard in Hebrew is the word Shema. And that would have been meaningful. Because Shema is also the name of a prayer that's at the center of the Jewish faith. It's a prayer that Jesus and Peter and James and John would have prayed every morning and every evening. The Shema prayer is a prayer that was given to them by Moses. It's found in the document that Moses created called Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we find what is the Shema prayer. And the reason it's called Shema is because the Hebrew word for listen or hear is the word Shema, and that's the first word of this prayer. And so the Shema prayer is this, it's listen or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And that's so significant. Because if that's what they heard, it may have triggered for them, oh, that's the prayer that Moses taught us, is that that we're supposed to, to listen. And in the Shema prayer, it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which is like God the Father authorizing and authenticating Jesus as God the Son. This is God now in human form. Not lesser, not different, but God in human form. And the whole idea of listen also communicates the idea of obey. Because in Hebrew, there's no other word for obey. It's the same word as listen. So if you wanted to say obey, you would say shema. If you wanted to say listen, you would say shema. Because the idea is, when you listen, you obey. As parents, we're like, yes, that's the thing. Listen and obey, right? And it never happens. But that's the idea, is that it should be synonymous, right? That when you hear me, you should do what I say. That's what God's saying. And what he's saying is that's now true about Jesus, that when we listen to Jesus, we are to obey him because he's God. And then, I just love what happens. Mark's just great at telling stories. Verse 8, suddenly, now we're back to suddenly, right? Now we just skip, all right, here we go, and here's next. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus, and I'm picturing like a rather awkward silence, right? Just like, what do you do in this moment? So they're coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, in verse 9, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They kept discussing this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant, because they still didn't quite get it. And then they ask a question that would have been on their mind because of what they just saw. Verse 11. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law law say that Elijah must come first? Why are they asking that question? Well, there is a prophecy that was given in what we call the Old Testament in the Jewish scriptures that said that before God uh, comes, before the day of the Lord comes, before the Messiah is there and returns and, and God comes and reestablishes his kingdom, that the prophet Elijah, remember who was taken up into cloud uh, in, into, into heaven, that he would return. And they're saying like, "Was that it on the mountain? or why, why is that the prophecy? Like what's this all about, Jesus? In fact, this prophecy comes from the book of Malachi, the prophecies of Malachi, chapter four, verses four and five. And what's interesting is that when Malachi gives this prophecy, he adds in Moses, which is just really significant for what we just read. He says, remember to obey, or Shema, the law of Moses, my servant, and all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. And then verse five, he says, I am sending you the prophet Elijah, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And so they're just asking, like, what does that mean? And what, what, what's the significance of this? And here's how Jesus responds as they're coming down the mountain. Verse 12, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And then he asked them this question, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? He's pushing their thinking. Verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about. And who he's referring to there is not literally the prophet Elijah, but John the Baptist. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, John the Baptist was a prophet that spoke right before Jesus began his earthly ministry. And John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. And he came not as a reincarnated version of Elijah, but he came in the same spirit, in that same prophetic spirit. And what he did is what that prophet had done before him, he spoke truth to power, and he called people to repentance, and to come back to God. And there's so many parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist. In fact, they dressed the same way. You read the New Testament, you find out that John the Baptist wore weird clothes, He wore animal skins and had a belt of leather wrapped around his waist. He had the weird look going. And and he also went to a king in power, not Ahab, but a man named Herod. And he challenged King Herod. And just like Elijah had challenged Ahab and Jezebel, John the Baptist was challenging Herod because Herod had done something evil and against the law he married his sister-in-law, Herodias, And Herod didn't like being called out by John the Baptist, but also scripture tells us that that, uh, Herod liked to enjoy listening to John the Baptist. And so he he didn't take any action against him, because he just kind of enjoyed being around him and hearing what he had to say. But his wife Herodias didn't like it at all, and she wanted John dead. And she politically outmaneuvers Herod, backs him into a corner, and forces him to issue a decree that John the Baptist is to be killed. He's already in prison, and then he is beheaded. And Jesus' point is John the Baptist is the one that Scripture had said was going to come back to call Israel back to God himself. And when he showed up on the scene, they murdered him. And Jesus is saying, so how much worse do you think it's going to be when God in his own glory, comes to the people. They're going to reject him. He's pushing the thinking of Peter, James, and John. And he's challenging them. And the reason he's challenging them is because they have what oftentimes we have, and that is a misconception of what it means to follow after Jesus. See, Peter was back to those tents. And he kind of thought, like, Jesus, you can be in this tent, and the law can be in this tent, and all the prophecies can be in this tent, and then we kind of like enjoy all of that. And sometimes we do the same thing with Jesus. Sometimes we go to Jesus and we say, I'm gonna follow you, Jesus, and you're gonna make me feel good about my life spiritually, forgive me my sins, and try to help comfort me, which is true, and Jesus wants to do that. But then we're like, but then I'm gonna have my vocational tent. And it's gonna be my vision for how I wanna live my life or what my career is gonna look like or what success is gonna be looking like. And then I'm gonna have like my family tent. And this is like what my family's gonna look like and how I want my family to be shaped. And then this is like my lifestyle tent and how that's gonna be orchestrated. and This is like my friend tent. And we wanna keep everybody in their place so they don't mess with each other. And Jesus is saying, don't do that to me. That's not who I am. I am the God that is above all of it. If you're gonna follow me, you have to be willing to do it my way, not your way. And it brings us back to that moment of, do we trust him? That's why God the Father was saying, you need to listen to Jesus. Well, what do we need to listen to him about? Well, we need to listen to everything that Jesus teaches us. But specifically, this event occurred six days after something. That's why Mark gives us that indication. What happened six days prior to this event? Well, if if you're reading here in Mark chapter nine, just go back up a little bit to Mark chapter eight. When Mark wrote this, he didn't have chapters and verses. Uh, We've added those later. But if you read just back up a little bit in uh, Mark chapter eight, and you get to verses 35 and 36, Jesus is giving those disciples and us a very challenging teaching. And here it is. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And the challenge that that was given to was in the context of Peter saying, Jesus, I don't think you need to die. And we don't need to suffer. Because you're God and you've got all this power as as Messiah. And that's our vision of how this is going to work. And again, Peter's just trying to put Jesus in his own little tent and everybody stay in their place because this was really about Peter's vision for what Peter's life was gonna look like. And Jesus is saying, That's not it. You gotta be willing to trust me with everything. That's what we need to listen to Jesus about willing to trust him, even when God does things his way that's not our way. And the reason it's so challenging for Peter is because. He couldn't comprehend how God's vision would would still work out for their success. If Jesus died, it seemed like nothing would make sense. Because Peter didn't understand what sometimes we don't understand, and that's that God has such a bigger plan. That when Jesus died, he died to take the punishment for our sins, so that you and I would not have to suffer the consequences for the actions that we have done if we follow Jesus, And folks, if that isn't true and that didn't happen, we don't have any hope. Jesus doesn't just want to give us a good life here on earth. He wants to give us an eternal life where we're in the heavenly places with him. That's his grand vision for us. It is a whole life transformation. And it's so much better than what we could imagine. And often we miss it because we're holding back. And in order to help them understand that and to help us understand that, Jesus shows them his glory, just like he did to the other two men on the other mountain in the other stories. And that's that idea of being transfigured. I told you we'd come back to it. That idea of being transfigured is what is true on the inside becomes outside. And Jesus is saying, this is who I am, and you need to understand that. And when you see me for who I am, then you will be willing to trust me and follow me. I'm not going to explain everything to you. I'm not going to give you a detailed point-by-point explanation. If I did, you wouldn't listen anyway. You just need to see me for who I am and see my glory, and then you'll be willing to follow me. And that's what the Apostle Paul teaches us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul has this powerful passage that that gives us such great instruction and it's so relevant to this passage. Paul says, and and we all who with unveiled faces, that brings us right back to Moses, contemplate, that means you focus on, you reflect on the glory of God. and you contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed, That's that that we're being changed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul's saying when you focus on Jesus and who he really is and what he really offers to us, it begins to change us because we see God for who he is. And that's the purpose and the point of this passage of scripture is for us to see the glory of Jesus for who he is. So I had, I had written this message a couple weeks ago, and I got right to this point. I was I was done writing. And I got a phone call. There, there's a, a project that we've been working on uh, for months here at church. Because, you know, like any organization, we have challenges. And as the leader of the organization, you carry those things, right? I carry those things. And there's some problems that we're trying to solve and some things that we can just do better and, and get ahead on. And God brought a solution. I didn't seek it out, God brought it right to me. And somebody reached out and God brought it to me a solution. And I thought, man, this is awesome. And, prayed a lot about it and wanted to be sure and investigated it. It was like, yeah, this is going to be the thing. And so then I got my team involved, and they started committing their time and their resources and their prayers and their energy. We started to get excited. It was like, hey, we, we're going to be able to take a step forward, and this is going to be great. And, and we were all excited. And the phone call I got, as right as I was finishing writing this message, was a phone call that surprised me that said, it's, it's not going to happen. And, and I was discouraged. I was disappointed was frustrated, I was confused. I was like Elijah on the mountain, being like, God, I don't get it. Like this is good, if this thing happens, this is a good thing, like why wouldn't you, you brought this to me, I didn't even bring this up, this was your idea, now you're not gonna have, like what's going on? I have those conversations with God too, just so you know. And so I did in that moment what I will often do and what I'll encourage you to do, I went for a prayer walk, that doesn't sound, don't let it be super spiritual, I put my shoes on, went outside, and just started talking to God uh, and just voicing all of this. And, and God, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. And it was like, you know, midway through that walk, God just kind of, not out loud, but just kind of in my spirit whispers, like, hey, what did you just write about? I was like, oh, yeah. And so I started focusing not on the situation and on the problem and not about how I felt about it, but on Jesus and who he is. He's the God created all of this he spoke it into being and he created the idea of salvation the church is his idea he's in charge of the church he gave me salvation he created me he loves me he died for me he came back to life so that i could have his spirit he put me in this position and in this opportunity at this time, knowing that this was the situation. And this was no mistake, and he knew it was going to happen, and it's no accident. And I would love to tell you I got home, and I got another phone call that, like, just kidding, it's all going to happen now, and that's not true, and it didn't happen. We're still, I mean, still today, right now, we're still dealing with this. It hasn't gotten any better. But here's What happened? by reflecting on who God is and his glory, that problem, it got a little bit smaller. It didn't go away, it didn't solve anything, but it it got a little bit smaller in comparison to who God is because he got a whole lot bigger in my mind. Because I focused on who he was. And in focusing on who he was, it reminded me, he's the only one that I can trust. So I wanna give us an opportunity to focus on the glory of God as we end this service. Simply by reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. Because I know you have problems, and you have challenges, and you have questions, and, and, and you're confused about some things, and you're discouraged about some things. And what I want to say to you is Jesus knows that. But he wants you to see him for who he is. Because when you do, you know you can follow him because you can trust him. And when that happens, we start to become transformed. And so, Father, we come into your presence. And, Lord, we have some heavy things that we're carrying. We have some confusing things that have been going on relationally. We have some frustrating things that have been happening in our family and with our finances and with our friends and our jobs. Father, we're, we're concerned and worried about many things. And Lord, I pray that in this moment we would be reminded of who you are and we would focus on your glorious face, Jesus. And it would give us new perspective. And it would remind us that we can trust you. So we invite your Holy Spirit to meet with us now in this moment. As we are reminded of what is true.